Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Katie Gordon. Katie is a co-founder, national organizer, and network weaver with Nuns and Nuns, a collaboration between Catholic sisters and spiritually diverse millennials that seeks to create communities of care, contemplation, and courageous action. She's also a staff member of Monasteries of the Heart, an online monastery of over 20,000 members that translates Benedictine wisdom for contemporary seekers. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Katie, so excited to be here with you today. So excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. So as we talk, you are currently living in in a convent in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, I live in a small monastic community. So a couple summers ago, I lived in the main monastery itself. And I call it a monastery instead of a convent because this is a monastic community. And so that's just the terminology um, rooted in their tradition. And it's a Benedictine community. So the tradition is over 1500 years old and has looked different in, in different eras, but they're the home of these communities have always been the monastery. And this particular monastery has a couple smaller communities in the city. And so I live in one of the smaller communities in the city. So I live with just four of the sisters and share daily life here with them. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. And maybe before getting into a little bit of the yeah, I'd love to ask a little bit more about the kind of specifics of that and, and how the kind of like satellite communities work and, and, and the other projects you're involved with. But for folks who are less familiar with you and some of your background, how did you end up kind of choosing to live with, with the sisters here? Yeah, well, it was a total surprise that I ended up living in a monastery. Would have never occurred to me even just a few years ago. But I I lived in Grand Rapids in Michigan for a few years And I was doing interfaith organizing explicitly from an atheist agnostic perspective. I initially got into interfaith work because I was interested in how people who are secular like myself could be in conversation with people from different religious traditions. But over the years of interfaith organizing, I was experiencing a lot of holy envy, which is a term I think from, uh, I don't remember who that term is from, but it, it means you know, essentially that I was, I was very envious. I was admiring of religious traditions and what they offered people's lives. And as a secular non-religious person, I was really looking to the religious figures that I was getting to know for inspiration and how to structure a meaningful life for myself. And the group that I experienced the most holy envy with was the Catholic sisters in the city. So the Dominican sisters of Grand Rapids, I got to know them through interfaith organizing, oftentimes on the many sort of interfaith committees that I was a part of. They were some of the only women that consistently showed up because many of the faith traditions more often had male clergy um, and men in religious leadership. And the sisters were incredible spiritual religious leaders, often showing up to not only interfaith events, but events in the city. They were always at protests and at marches. And so there was one instance where we were at a climate march and I was carrying the banner with a sister, a Grand Rapids Dominican sister, and really got to talk with her one-on-one about her own spiritual journey. 
and developed a friendship with her where I started to realize that even though I identified as agnostic or non-religious and she was seemingly very religious, we actually had a lot in common. We actually, I think, had a lot of similar questions and yearnings as well. And so that relationship opened up what became Nuns and Nuns, which is N-U-N-S, Catholic Sisters, and N-O-N-E-S, non-religious or spiritually diverse millennials in community and conversation together. So we started that in Grand Rapids. It was also getting started around the country in different places with different groups coming together. And those relationships have really carried me through the last four years. When I started in Grand Rapids four years ago with those community gatherings, was in Divinity School at Harvard Divinity for a couple of years still coordinating gatherings and getting to know sisters. And then the day after graduation, I moved into a monastery. And I think, you know, <laughs> I mean, logically, it did, did it made sense. I was excited to deepen in this tradition and get to know this community. But I was also sort of just following the spirit, as sisters say. It felt like the right place to go. And a year and a half later, I'm still here. So I think it was the right place to to land. Yeah, yeah. Such a cool, cool story and such a cool journey. I, I think, you know, many younger folks, myself included, you know, maybe are interested and intrigued by the idea of monastic living. But from what I understand, like traditional monastic orders, I know I, I've spoken with more folks in the Buddhist tradition, they tend to be drying up a little bit. Like they're, they're having a harder time creating new members. At least some of the folks I've talked to in like uh, the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition and, and a couple others in the West. But there are a number of people kind of experimenting with new ways to approach monasticism. We're talking to some folks from the monastic academy, and, and I know there's this whole kind of trend of new monasticism as well. And because, yeah, could you just talk a little bit more about what is your, I know you're also involved with Monasteries of the Heart. What is your kind of take on, on where things are going in monasticism and what are some of the kind of, um, I guess, trends and I guess, questions that are alive? Yeah. 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 This is a fascinating time for monastic tradition. And I would, I would say, and I hope monastic renewal you know, the yearning toward monastic tradition that, as you say, I think a lot of young people feel, it's a timeless yearning. I think it's it's always been there. And what we're experiencing right now is a search for the structures that can respond to and fit that that particular kind of yearning. So I think it's a really interesting time because what we see in Benedictine women religious communities, just to take sort of the container that I'm most familiar with, There are hundreds of women Benedictine monasteries across the country, and many of them are, as you say, sort of diminishing in numbers and in membership of avowed sisters. So fewer people are joining the order in the way that has always been. But at the same time, over the last few decades, as vowed religious has been decreasing oblates, which are sort of lay people, secular, or not formally affiliated with the monastery, but wanting to deepen in monastic tradition, the number of oblates are rapidly increasing. And so in many communities, there are more oblates than vowed co- than vowed members. And so it's interesting because the membership is sort of shifting so that there are just as many members of this monastery outside of the walls of the institution um, rather than inside. So 
While many people might view this time as a time of diminishment, I actually think that it's a time of expansion and really broadening what it means to be monastic and to be grounded in that tradition. And that language of expansion of religious life or monastic life comes from a good friend and writer of uh, who lives here in Erie, who's a sister, Linda Romy. And she really agrees. She says, you know, this is a time of great excitement where there is more possibility and experimentation. There are seekers like myself who are like knocking on the door and wanting to come live and learn alongside these women. And I know that, you know, the structure of the vowed life, the vows that they take aren't the ones that I want to take, but I know I want to deepen in the tradition. And so what I'm hoping and what I'm seeing more and more are people taking some initial formation in the monastic tradition, whether it's formation through the reading that you do, through the retreats that you participate in, um, or the teachers that you have. They're taking these ideas that have grounded the monastic tradition and taking them outside of the monastery and trying out new formats, new structures for this life that is just a you know, it couples the spiritual journey with the social journey and creates sort of that structured life for solitude along community, along commitment to common good. So there are more and more structures getting tried out. A couple that I'm really excited about are the Center for Spiritual Imagination, which Adam Bucko, who is a part of these new monastic conversations, is trying out this new way of belonging rooted in monastic tradition. There's also other communities. Mystic Soul Project is a really incredible POC queer-led community that is sort of reclaiming that lineage of mysticism and monastic tradition. And then, of course, the projects that I'm working on, Nuns and Nuns, is also really looking at this intersection of sort of monastic tradition and contemporary movements And here in Erie, I'm working with one of the ministries that the monastery founded 10 years ago, which is an online monastery called Monasteries of the Heart. And so in Monasteries of the Heart, we have around 23,000 members online from all over the world who are looking to deepen in monastic practice. We say our mission is translating monastic wisdom for contemporary seekers. And it's just incredible to see across generations how much longing there is for a deeper spiritual life integrated in how we show up in the world. And people are looking to monastic tradition, but translating it into the daily realities in fresh ways. Right, right. Well, and it's so interesting, right? I mean, it seems like, you know, I think a lot of the experiments that I've seen around kind of creating community or creating, creating containers of meaning for folks who are yearning, particularly outside of tradition, tend to be lower commitment kind of entities, like whether it's a drop in meditation or a one-off discussion, or maybe there's kind of a higher thing. But it seems like there's a real yearning for these kind of containers of higher commitment, really being called into a certain set of practices that really ask us to go beyond, you know, what would be kind of our, maybe what we're able to do alone as opposed to what we're able to do in a community of practice and support. Does that resonate with what you're seeing or, or yeah, how do you think about yeah, it? Yeah, totally. I think there is, it might be a smaller number, but I think it's a strong number of people who are looking for the deeper commitment. And I think what they're looking for is, is a holistic container to hold their lives. 
And the way that I, women religious, as I've gotten to know, look at the vows is that this vow, this commitment to listening, this commitment to stability, to continual conversion is the container for my life. Like everything that we do and how we be is filtered through this bigger commitment to God, to spirit, to each other. And so I think that that's where the hunger is coming from. It's this desire to be connected into something bigger than ourselves. And so while, you know, showing up to weekly or daily practice is really incredible and I think transformative as well, what I hear a desire for from people is a deeper level of integration of like looking for the place, the container, the structure that can hold not just sort of these experiences that you can show up to and leave, but something that flows through your your whole being and your whole day. Right, right. Well, and and so maybe that that's a great jumping off point for maybe learning a little bit more about uh, monasteries of the heart. I, I know I personally, I, I at the beginning of the pandemic, I actually bought a book on Benedictine spirituality because I'm like, okay, I'm living at home. This feels like a time to kind of approach life in a monastic way. And I read actually some of Adam Bucko and some of the other folks who've written monasticism in those books. I never got to the book on Benedictine spirituality. So I'd be curious, maybe for folks like myself who are less familiar, tell me a little bit what what is involved in kind of the Benedictine spiritual path and what does it mean to try and translate that um, online? Love it. Yes. Check out Benedictinism. It's a great tradition. And I want to want to plug the teachers that I've learned from first because I still feel very new to living and learning in the in the tradition. But Joan Chittister is a sister here in the community, has written upwards of 40 books on Benedictine wisdom, particularly for contemporary times. And Mary Lou Kaunacki, who co-founded Monasteries of the Heart and also has incredible books on the Benedictine tradition and the peace movement, especially. But I'll give sort of an overview of my experience of the of the Benedictine tradition. I think, let's see where to begin with it. There are five pillars of the Benedictine tradition, and this is how we structure our online monastery as well as around these five pillars. And it's prayer, community. Lexio, which is L-E-C-T-I-O. Lexio is sacred reading, study, and service, social justice, commitment to service. And so to be Benedictine, you really live with these five commitments in your daily life in some way. And for me too, I think So there's this commitment to solitude, to personal practice, to reading, to always be growing. Um, But then there's also a commitment to showing up for your community, to the sisters, to your neighbors, to the people in the city that you don't know, but have needs that you can meet, um, just continuing to show up for the world. And so it's this rhythm, really, the way I experience it is both sort of like spiritual commitment and social commitment. So every day there's space for myself and there's space for others and being able to respond to the needs around me. So it's, yeah, it's a spiritual tradition that helps you show up to the world in a deeper way. And and I guess quick question. So I think I grok, I, I get a lot of those. What is the nuance between study and sacred reading? Is it just a different way you approach reading or yeah, how would you understand that? Yeah, I think, I mean, study can be like a a deeper dive, more expansive. And Lexio, sacred reading is really meant to be, it's not about consumption, but it's about listening. So traditionally, Lexio is like, 
you don't you don't need much for Lexio. You can read like a paragraph <laughs> and just sit with whatever is sort of calling out to you from that. So you're really listening for how God, the divine spirit is speaking you to you through this text or whatever it is. It could be a photo. It could be the news even. It's it's just like a particular lens of looking for the sacred in what you are reading. Right, right. Well, and so you mentioned, you know, when you first kind of started this journey, you know, you were kind of doing interfaith organizing from an agnostic atheistic lens. And I'm curious, you know, now situated, you know, really within the kind of Christian Benedictine tradition, do you find that that language is really now kind of like resonant and you've kind of moved more towards like the theistic or, or, you know, God oriented spirituality, or is it still, is there a sense of kind of coming to your own understandings of these, these terms that, um, yeah, like I'm curious, I'm always curious how much of it is kind of, uh, you know, moving to a new place versus kind of finding new language for, for words that maybe previously didn't fit and then now find a way to fit. Yeah, I think I'm still searching for the right language and I'm I'm learning how to feel more at home in the languagelessness of my spiritual life. I think by nature of just like grasping for clarity, you know, five plus years ago, agnostic and atheist was the easiest to grab at and to say that's close, right? And of course, this is where like N-O-N-E, none comes from is like people don't know often what it is they deeply believe in or um, are are affiliated with. And so checking none of the above is just, it's easier. So I don't, I sort of like the identity of, of spiritual seeker because it indicates an emphasis on the journey rather than the destination. And um, I feel like I will always be growing and listening and yeah, changing. So I find sort of the the constraints, the creative constraints of being within a tradition to help me find language and to be really helpful right now. Cool, cool. And so getting back to monasteries of the heart, you know, I'd be curious, you know, we talked about these five practices. What does it actually look like to try and help folks who are, you know, maybe oblates or, or lay folk who are interested in exploring some of these practices or kind of framing their life in this way? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. So, I mean, we've we've built up membership over the last 10 years and people are really coming from all over the place. But what I'm finding or what I'm hearing from the members that are most committed to it is that they aren't finding the spiritual community where they are or, you know, they might be a part of a church or an organization, but it's not filling a deeper hunger that they have. And so that's what's bringing them online and into our space is that deeper inquiry. And so we just try to engage that in the, in the most authentic way that we can through, you know, like e-courses or online retreats where people can deepen in understanding how Benedictine values can apply into their lives, which are like all over the place. They are not monks per se, but they certainly are cultivating the monk within themselves. And so it's really amazing because you see just how many ways there are to practice this age-old tradition. And I, I think the most powerful thing about the community is like a couple of weeks ago, we just had a retreat on humility, which is the longest chapter in the rule of Benedict is on humility. And so really many people say, many sisters here say that if you want to understand the rule of Benedict and being Benedictine, you have to understand humility. 
which I think in our contemporary context can mean a lot of things. What it means in the Benedictine tradition is that you know what your gifts are and you know what people around you, what their gifts are, and you bring your full self to the table, both with like a deep bow to everyone around you, but also offering up what you have. And so we had this retreat on humility and 120 people came from all over the world. And it was a chance to sort of feel into like a global sense of these seekers, like that it it spans generations and even traditions but there are so many people on the journey and it can feel often like a very solitary journey. But I think communities like Monasteries of the Heart are really important to sort of bring together and remind you that there are many, many people committed to this path. Right. When, and I'm curious, you know, on these retreats, um, well, what does the kind of day-to-day look like? I mean, it's so cool that you're able to bring all these folks together. Is it, is it you know, people hopping on Zoom and and I guess praying and reading and yeah, what's it like? Yeah, the day to day is less exciting than the big exciting the big ideas that motivates it. But our website is essentially a place. There are many forums and conversations, so we offer practices every week, Lexio practices, um, blogs to read, courses to study with, prayers to integrate into your prayer life and good works to integrate into your life as well. And then people are sharing sort of how these things are landing with them, what they're getting out of it, and really building on each other. Um, So it's it's a place to, yeah, it's really a place to practice, I think, and to bring your practice and share it with others. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the vows of the avowed sisters versus tablets and how, you know, you know, you you as a, you personally are kind of interested in this type of living, and yet the vows that are maybe the standard for the, the order are not quite resonant with you know the vows that you would like to make spiritually. And so, you know, I'm curious, yeah, what is what do you think, you know, moving towards new monasticism, you know, what is what does it look like? What what are vows, what does commitment look like? Do you think that looks like individuals each kind of taking their own vows and and describing their own kind of path in a in a kind of heterogeneous community or do you think pockets of people who are kind of interested in the same kind of committed life come together but Mm -hmm. what do you kind of feel like you're personally living towards yeah such an exciting question yeah I think I, I think I mentioned this earlier um there's this quote from Meg Wheatley that I find really helpful who, and she said that a vow is a container for your life. It's not necessarily like to put all your hopes and dreams in, but a vow is just how you move through life. And I actually, you know, to talk about the particular Benedictine vows that they take here, I'm actually really drawn to them. They're so cool. The vow of stability is one of the particular, it's a monastic vow, Benedictine vow. And stability is rootedness to place and to being in relationship with this place in this community. And so taking the vow of stability as an Erie Benedictine means you're going to stay an Erie Benedictine and stay in Erie. And so it really goes against the transience that I think many people tend to live into today. I think people are really hungry for more stability. And of course, the pandemic is giving us a dose of what that can feel like. 
So that's one of the vows. Another vow is the uh, vow of continual conversion. So it means like every day I will change and grow and I will look for how I am growing in each moment. I think that continual conversion alongside stability creates just such a healthy, flowing spiritual life. And then the third vow is the vow of obedience, which is, I think people probably have assumptions about what that would mean within the Catholic Church, especially as a group of women taking a vow of obedience to a patriarchal church. But the way that sisters have reclaimed the vow of obedience is that it is an obedience to spirit. It is an obedience to one another. It's an obedience to your own calling. So it's really a vow that's about living your fullest life. So these three vows are incredibly beautiful and powerful. And I certainly want to embody each of them in my life. But the container of the Catholic Church is not the container in which I want to express those commitments. Um, So that's where I'm sort of searching for how else can I live into these vows. The Catholic doctrine, theology, history, politics, it just doesn't resonate with me. I don't I don't believe in the church in the way that I think one should if they are a part of it. And so I'm really looking for the inspiration of where we can take these vows outside of that structure and into into ways that we can still, I think, take what's so powerful about it, which is a community to witness your commitment alongside. So I could take these vows as an individual and like no one could know, but I could reflect on it daily or whatever it is. But I really am looking for the people to go along the path with. Right, right. So that's such an interesting, um, yeah, such a nuanced perspective. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me, I know you, before we, we, uh, Got on today a couple of days ago. You shared this tiny letter that you'd written, this newsletter update, talking about the Immaculate Heart uh, community and this monastic community sisters that you know had a really strained relationship with, I guess, Central Catholic HQ yeah. um, and, the, and the patriarchal you know systems there. And you know, I, I, you wrote a little bit about this in the essay, but I'm curious, you know, having been in the the monastic community you're currently part of for for about a year. An hour, a little over a year. What is your understanding of how these, you know, mass communities, orders of sisters, kind of relate to the the kind of main systems of of the Catholic Church? And, and I think what's interesting, you know, I think actually I, I sat in on the first nuns and nuns in New York, where there was kind of an open gathering, and we watched this movie about uh, or documentary about sisters kind of organizing for political change, which one would traditionally think of as very kind of liberal, uh, you know, political change. Well, I forget I forget the specific action of it, whether it was, yeah, for, I heard the specific political action that it was towards, but, but yeah, but, but getting almost censured by the central church for kind of some of the action they were taking, right? So. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that, that documentary that we watched a couple of years ago, I think it's called Radical Grace. Yes. And it's a great documentary. Yeah. The sisters, one of the groups of sisters in that documentary, some, led by sister Simone Campbell was nuns on the bus. And it was this group of sisters who got on a bus, went across the country advocating for healthcare reform. And they were explicitly going against what the U.S. Council of Bishops were saying about health care reform. And so that's one instance of sort of institutional Catholic Church 
and women religious budding heads. And the larger context of that was an investigation of the Catholic Church Vatican of women religious in the U.S. for being essentially too committed to social justice. They were doing too much on these perceived as like liberal progressive causes. And so the Vatican was sort of trying to rein in the sisters and kind of bring them in line. So that's a history that is as old as religious life itself. Sisters are called to follow the gospel and follow Jesus's path. And if you look at what Jesus did, he was not a part of any institution. He gathered with other people and responded to the needs around him and did whatever was needed. And so that's what sisters today are doing. And it's interesting to see, yeah, the instances of when when it's brought to like a public clash most of the time, sisters are just like going about the work very quietly, not seeking like accolades or <laughs> appreciations. They're just doing the work that needs to be done in their city. And I think that's why so many of us are so drawn to the models of sisters because the community is the container in which they do good work that the world needs. But then sometimes this higher structure, the institutional church, thinks it's too much and wants to rein it in. The other documentary that just came out and premiered at Sundance a couple weeks ago is called Rebel Hearts, and it follows the Immaculate Heart community in LA. And this community was being too radical. They were they were doing like incredible political education on their campus, on their college campus. This was the 1960s. They were really a part of this like new culture of activism that was happening in the 60s. One of the sisters went to march at Selma with Martin Luther King Jr. and really brought the cause of racial justice back to her community. Creta Kent was an incredible artist. If anyone hasn't heard of Creta Kent, I highly encourage checking her out. She was an artist doing political activism through her artwork. And all of these things really threatened the local cardinal. He didn't think that that's what these women religious should be doing. And so he tried to stifle their creative energy. And eventually that led to multi-year controversy in which at the end of it, the sisters were asked to either like follow what the cardinal was saying or to leave the Catholic church. And it was a very tender, painful moment because 400 women committed their lives to being Catholic in the world and to living the life of Jesus. And then we're told by the higher ups, you're not doing it our way. And so you have to leave. And so these sisters really lost a part of their identity. And there was a lot of grief in that. But there were 325 out of the 400 sisters that signed this piece of paper that said, I'm releasing myself from these vows and I'm no longer a part of the Catholic Church. And many of those women, out of that grief and pain, created a new community that could live into the potential of what they were building. And so they became the Immaculate Heart community, not associated with the Catholic Church, but deeply associated with a, a Christian faith. And it really broke open what was possible for their community. So now, 50 years later, they still have over 100 members some of the sisters that were from that original community in the 60s. But now they also have 
LGBTQ folks that are a part of their community. Men are a part of the community. Married people are a part of the community. It's just broken open what it can mean to be a religious. And so it's really, yeah, it's interesting to see that model as well. I think there are many sisters struggling within the church, both to like make change happen within the church, but then there are also some who are just saying, you know, let's bring our energy outside of the church and try to change society at large. So both paths are needed and valuable and sisters are very good at, I think, walking that line very compassionately with a lot of love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one question that came up for me, you know, I think when, when hearing about the Immaculate Heart community and this tension they went through with the, the Catholic church, you know, and it makes sense that when you've committed your life so fully to a an ideal to an organization that leaving it is this, you know, I'm sure in many ways like a traumatic experience. I'm I'm curious, you know, if there's more to like the relationship as well. Like, does a lot of the funding for kind of some of these monastic communities come from the central church? That that was the the first question that came to mind is like, does this, you know, is is kind of disaffiliating them actually also like an existential threat to the community's ability to function in the same way? It's a great question. No, not really. I mean, so the women religious communities, the ones that I'm most familiar with, they're not getting any funding from the Catholic Church. Sisters raise their own well-being. So I think that that's often an assumption that there's like some benefit to being a part of the structure in that way. But it really is. It's about identity and it's about being a part of the global church in that way. So yeah, the way that, I mean, Sisters Funding works, just because I think this is another really exciting example to draw on, is that it's essentially like a co-op in a lot of ways. It's very communist in nature. I mean, the structures of religious life are pre-capitalism. This is an economic communal life that was founded 1,500 years ago and has certainly adapted through different times but really holds values of common ownership. And so sisters bring in money all by themselves through the ministries that they are a part of, and it goes into a common pot. Each sister gets a stipend per month because they take a commitment or a vow to poverty. So they're not, um, their goal is not to accumulate wealth. Um, It's just for the common good. And so they often share car fleets. They share land and property among themselves and housing. So everything is held in common, just like early Christianity and Jesus sort of set the model and inspiration for. Cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, I know we're kind of getting towards the end and I, um, I guess before jumping off, you know, I'd be curious. I know you mentioned that nuns and nuns is in kind of like a discernment period and seeking um, direction, but I'd be curious if you could just share anything about maybe, um, yeah, this moment you're at with nuns and nuns and what was kind of precipitated the discernment and what are, if there's anything bubbling to life of what might be, might be next. Yeah. Thanks for bringing in nuns and nuns. I get so excited about monastic tradition and Benedictinism. I just like run away with that. But of course that deeply inspires nuns and nuns too. Yeah. Well, so we have existed for four years now in various sort of models of gathering, of hosting community conversations, 
um, local groups of sisters and seekers have started around the country. And this past year, like with every community, the past year has brought a lot of challenges for us just as everything moved online. All of our gatherings are hosted online. And as a core organizing team, we haven't been able to meet So a lot of our plans sort of pivoted, but then deepened and pivoted and deepened. So the core inquiry that we're asking now is really by sitting at this really fascinating intersection between women religious and spiritual traditions and elders and teachers and spiritual traditions, and then the younger generation that's yearning for more spiritually grounded social movement Like, how can we uniquely bring these groups together? And one of the most exciting sort of pieces of inquiry for that with us is really in in response to the pandemic and the times we're living through of a racial reckoning of interrogating white supremacy in our institutions and structures is holding the question of repair. What does repair look like for our spiritual communities? What does repair look like in religious life? And what does, how can we, yeah, take the call to repair, which is across traditions, across religious and spiritual traditions? How do we take that seriously in our own communities? And that's really what we're sort of listening into right now is as people are increasingly sort of the illusion of like security in our world, it's just like, it's clear that We cannot go back to the way things were before the pandemic. If we can't go back to the way things were, what will we walk on to? How will we be able to create new pathways that can repair and heal socially, politically, ecologically, the divisions that have been exposed in even more ways in the past year? And so... That's the inquiry we're sitting with is is how to support and resource this pathway for intergenerational, interspiritual communities to be committed to repair in our times. That's a big question. That's a yeah. tough one. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we're we're holding that with a lot of um humility to the larger ecosystem of teachers and movements that are also holding this question and really listening for what is the particular way in which our people can respond to the needs of the moment. Right, right. Cool. Well, it's important work. Uh, what uh, Maybe that's a nice way, a place to, uh, to end. Um, and uh, maybe down the line, we can kind of continue the conversation and be curious to hear how those, uh, how the discernment goes and what, um, what comes forth in terms of the work to to kind of heal and to repair. I know uh, the folks on being talked with Eddie Gonzalez, who I think also is nuns and nuns of Jason, um, yeah. last week about some of the stuff you do done with the Civil Conversations Project. And yeah, it, it seems like such an important problem and something that I guess we can only start taking the first step towards, even if we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's sort of our mantra from the last year for nuns and nuns has been, you know, what is the next right loving action that we can take? And I think that's all any of us can do, especially in the complex and chaotic times that we're living through. And to be grounded and spiritually resourced and relationally resourced in that is, I think, sets us up well to to take those steps. Yeah. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, Katie, thanks so much for taking the time. Before we hop off, if folks want to learn more about you, about Monasteries of the Heart, about Nuns and Nuns, where should they look online? Yeah. Uh, nunsandnuns.org, N-U-N-S and N-O-N-E-S dot O-R-G, has some up-to-date info and newsletters to find. And monasteriesoftheheart.org um, is how to find out more info about that. And probably the best place to reach me is on Twitter. I've ended up really loving that platform for better or worse. So you can find me there at Katie Ray Gordon. And I would love to continue the conversation with anyone interested. Cool. Wonderful. Well, thanks again so much for being here. Thank you, Casey. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the OpenDiv Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.